BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends and neighbors. It's the Bill Press Pod. Welcome back. And welcome back to Washington Post reporters, Carol Lenig and Phil Rucker. We last visited with Phil and Carol on publication of their book, A Very Stable Genius, a great book about the first three years of the Trump administration, which Trump attacked, by the way, as pure fiction. Well, now Carol and Phil are back with a blockbuster new book about the last year of the Trump administration called I Alone Can Fix It. Believe me, if you're listening to this podcast, you like politics. So this is a book you must buy and must read. On one hand, it'll scare the hell out of you. On the other hand, it'll restore your faith in democracy and our ability to survive. Because as they tell the story, 2020 was not just as chaotic and dangerous as we all remember it, it was far, far worse. We came that close to losing it all. We're lucky we still have a country left. What a crazy year. Carol and Phil took time out from a whirlwind book tour to tell us all about it. Carol Lenning, Phil Rucker, thank you so much for joining us again on the Bill Press Pod. Back again, and congratulations on your new book, I Alone Can Fix It. Thanks so much. We're glad to be here. Yeah, thanks, Bill. And you know, uh, I have to tell you, I just have to congratulate you. Uh, I love political reporting. This is the very best, extraordinary reporting job that you guys did in this book, uh, and great storytelling. Uh, I mean this as the highest compliment I can give you. I, I always look forward to the Bob Woodward book <laughs> on a previous administration. Uh, the only person I knew who had such great sources and could get in every room and tell us who was in every meeting, what they talked about. Uh, and you have, I think, surpassed Bob Woodward in that regard. This is really an incredible book. So congratulations. That's a huge compliment. So thank you. He's a colleague and a hero of ours. Uh, of all of ours, of course. Yeah. Uh, I want to start out by it, it, my overall impression reading the book, Carol. We knew that the last year, because we lived through it and reported on it, we knew the last year of the Trump administration was a shit show, uh, if I can use that <laughs> phrase. It, from reading your book, it was even even bigger shit show than we thought. Uh, what, uh, I want to ask each of you, Carol, start out, what was your overall impression of that last year? Well, I'm really struck by your takeaway because it was ours as well. Um, Phil and I often found ourselves moving against the reflex to have our jaws hit the floor during these <laughs> interviews. We were sitting with people um, realizing that while, while we had thought we had gotten a lot of this 
for the Washington Post in our reporting. We thought we had done a mm-hmm. good job capturing what 2020 was like in real time or close to it. There was so much more, uh, and we discovered that in this deeper excavation. Once the president was no longer the president, people freed up to talk, people who had been um, you know, suffering in silence or enduring in silence, and and they let loose. And what we discovered was the closest and most ardent supporters of the president were in a, you know, a near panic about what bizarre thing the president would do next or how they needed to throw their body in front of something that they thought would be dangerous for the democracy or, or imperil Americans' lives. What was your takeaway, Phil? You know, I think that's right. Uh, we were surprised by how much worse and more chaotic and more dangerous uh, everything was behind the scenes. We thought we knew the story in real time, in part because of of the reporting uh, we and, and many of our colleagues did in real time, but also because mm-hmm. the horrors played out in public for the country to witness. Uh, and yet when we did the deeper reporting, it was uh, there was so much more happening that we just didn't know about. So many sources that you talked to, and I want to get to some of those a little bit later, but your sources included a sit-down with Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago, which went on and on and on. Carol, what was that like? Describe that scene. Oh, my. I mean, there's so many elements of it that were fascinating and and hard to believe. Uh, we arrived at the... Mar-a-Lago, his club in Palm Beach uh, at five o'clock, as suggested. Um, we met him in the lobby where he wanted to con- where he wanted to conduct this interview. That was strange on its face. You know, why would you want to talk to reporters about the efficacy or the tone of your presidency in a room where anybody can walk through? The public but lobby, in- right? The public exactly. lobby. Exactly. And it turned out that that was part of the theater as arranged by the president, you know, the former president, Donald Trump. He he seemed to want for people who were arriving for dinner uh, at the club and starting to stroll in uh, to see that these Washington Post or Washington reporters were coming down to have their audience with Donald Trump, that he was still relevant and important, somebody to be seen and to interview and vice versa. You know, he it seemed he wanted us to see that he has an enormous fan base there at his Mm, club. mm. People sort of tiptoeing over sheepishly to say how much they were glad to be here to kiss his ring. There was a Congressman, Dan Crenshaw, who came over to tell the president how hearty and hale he looked. What's your secret, sir? Um, Laura Ingraham came by in clam bake pants to wave, wave to him and explain that, you know, he should tune in to her show the next day. She was really going to go hard against the doctors who had criticized President Trump's um, response to the coronavirus. And and then finally, Kimberly Guilfoyle, Donald Trump Jr.'s girlfriend, sort of, again, sort of obsequiously tiptoed over to, to plead for her boyfriend's father to come visit her table and and meet her friends who she promised were huge supporters of Donald Trump. The the place is a lot like um 
you know, Donald Trump's brigadoon. It's 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 an exile, but it's mm-hmm. also a place where he has a, a certain reality that is not tempered and not disputed. It has no correlation to reality, but but it's his reality, and nobody questions it. it and also, as we uh, left the the interview after two hours and 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, he came out striding out onto the patio where his dinner guests had finally all assembled. They gave him a standing ovation as he crossed the threshold. And uh, the, the music playing in the background was uh, Hail to the Chief. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, well, Phil, why, why, I'm sure you ask yourselves this, why would he agree to talk to you? I mean, your book, A Very Stable Genius, uh, good reporting, but it was really what did not show Donald Trump in the most positive light. Did he think he could persuade you to write a hagiography here? You know, I, I think he spoke to us for a couple of reasons. And you're right that uh, A Very Stable Genius was not the most flattering book, but it was, of course, a true book, um, a, a, a deeply yeah. reported book about his presidency. He refused to to do an interview with us for that book, and he trashed the book when it came out. But all it took was one ask uh, to get the interview for this second book, and, and he agreed right away, I, I think, for a few reasons. One... You know, he's no longer president, and so he misses the give, the back and forth, the give and take with reporters. He yeah. used to uh, have those interactions every day, and, and now he's, you know, nobody's coming down there to ask him questions every day. So he wanted the audience. He wanted the chance to talk, I think. But I think he also thought he could... Um, improve the narrative of, of our book on the margins, you know, perhaps persuade us of of his thinking in some areas, or at least have his perspective be represented uh, in the narrative of our book. And, and he wanted to try to curate history and, and you know, shape the way people will view his presidency and, and, and his legacy. You know, we're not that gullible. Uh, we're pretty hard-nosed <laughs> reporters. And when we got down there, we'd already interviewed 140 uh, you know, cabinet members and senior administration officials and advisors right. to Trump. And so we weren't looking for him to be our truthful narrator. He could never fill that role. Uh, but we did want to hear his perspective. And uh, we're glad we did. And and it's it became a pretty powerful and I think quite revealing epilogue to the book. Carol, if there's one word that appears on every single, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not much, that one word that appears on every single page of the book it is weak. The president, <laughs> former president, had an obsession with appearing weak. Tell yes. the, How did you experience that? I mean, tell, tell yeah. some examples of that, for example. I, I, I find it interesting you are, are struck by that word, too, because it drove so much of the way Donald Trump governed, if you can call it governing. It, it, I mean, really, he was focused on how he could avoid looking weak, how he could look strong. Partly that was um, because he believes his base is is super excited about him being this pugilist figure, a defender of them, of their rights, their America, whatever that means. And the, the other part seems to be innately part of his personality, uh, and it tracks with the way you know a Michael Cohen um, or another ally of his would describe Donald Trump's motivations. Here's a couple of ways in which it drove him during 2020, this catastrophic year where we really needed a president who was thinking about the country and not himself. Um, He 
was up just beside himself on June 1 when the morn that's a monday morning after black lives matter protesters people who've flocked to the to the white house that friday night to protest the killing of george floyd he's furious because that friday night he had been taken to the bunker is he angry that he's taken to a subterranean you know basement in the white house for his safety no he's angry because the information leaks that he was taken there and he literally says to his defense secretary to his attorney general to his chairman of the joint chiefs that the thing that makes him so angry is how it will make him look to other foreign leaders they'll be laughing at me i look weak i can't even control the situation in my own city and he also in the moment that he uh, contracts COVID. He's he's also beside himself on the notion that, um, well, hold on, I should rewind a moment and say that that compulsion to look strong in mm-hmm. that moment in June actually leads to one of the most authoritarian, just, just unbelievable moments where he pushes every single peaceful protester out of Lafayette Square outside the White House. Federal forces are ordered to use rubber bullets, chemical gas canisters, riot shields. And and you've seen the video, we've all seen the videos of, of people who were praying and chanting being shoved chaotically out of this square. Not exactly how you treat people who have First Amendment rights. But the, the reason that happens is Donald Trump wants to look tough. Yeah. He wants to show everybody he's got Washington in hand. And it, it happens again and again and again. And Phil, uh, so much of you, at least the whole I'd say, first three quarters of the book, uh, deals so much, your book, deals so much with COVID, because that's what the Trump, that's what we all, as a, an American people, were experiencing at the time. And it consumes so much of his presidency. Following on that, the week, not appearing week, one indication of it was his refusal to wear a mask or at first even to admit that he was vaccinated, correct? That's right. Uh, you know, he didn't admit that he had taken the vaccines until after leaving office. And he's actually not shown any any documentary uh, proof of that. He, he has long, uh, throughout, you know, predating his presidency, long been... Uh, a skeptic and an opponent of vaccines generally and, and shots. Uh, but anyhow, he, he says he took the coronavirus vaccine, but he didn't do so on camera or in a way that would promote um, the efficacy and the safety of it to his followers in a, in a public fashion. As for the masks, you know, his advisors pleaded with him to wear a mask and not just the health advisors and people like Dr. Fauci, who were, you know, repeatedly trying to explain to him the science behind it, uh, but also his political advisors, his pollster, Tony Fabrizio, uh, prepared an internal uh, polling review of the popularity of masks in the summer of 2020 and presented it to the president and showed him if he were to support masks, it would actually help him. Uh, in in the campaign, that he it would improve his favorability as it relates to managing the coronavirus, and Trump still refused to do so because he thought uh, that a mask looked weak. That was sort of his his gut uh, instinct about image and branding. He he thought it was a sign of weakness, and he didn't want to wear one. He of course did wear a mask on a couple of occasions, perhaps most famously when he was returning uh, from Walter Reed uh, after being hospitalized with the virus, and he. 
he he wore the mask getting off the helicopter and then when he climbed uh to the up, up to the balcony of the residence he you know famously ripped the mask off his face and and that's actually the photograph that appears right. on the cover of our book um but generally he was not an advocate of masks and he did not wear it in a way that health experts thought could have you know, persuaded the public to wear one. Uh, Carol, he, there's so many questions about uh, about the COVID that pop up through the book. But um, it, in terms of, he also was not a big he Donald Trump was not a big advocate of testing, right? Because as you keep pointing out, I, I mean, he kept saying, the more testing we do, the more number cases are going to be, and the numbers look bad for me. <laughs> yeah, you know, this is a very um, confounding element of Donald Trump's presidency at a time when American lives hang in the balance and his decisions really are, are life and death decisions. He is focused on what he repeatedly told his cabinet members and his medical advisors He's focused on what he calls his numbers. Yeah. Um, instead of like um, thinking of it like American people dying, he's thinking about who, how many numbers are are they rising, showing that this virus is not as he initially pronounced it. You know, a miracle. It's just going to go away miraculously. Uh, you know, it's nothing. We're, we've got it totally under control, which is what he said throughout. January through March, you know, no problems, no problems. Um, there are two places where members of his administration are flabbergasted, gobsmacked by Donald Trump's reference to his numbers. One of them is when he is called from his chief of staff's office. The chief of staff at the time, Mick Mulvaney, is gathering a few coronavirus task force members to discuss a plan to basically fly emergency evacuation military planes out of Wuhan, carrying U.S. employees, diplomats, and also government workers mm -hmm. to get them out of what essentially is a shuttered city, a city that's on lockdown that China is trying to 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 barricade and they want to get their own Americans out of there and they want to alert the president they're doing this. Well, the president is beside himself when they first tell him and he says, oh, no, 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 no. We're not getting my numbers up. What if some of those people are sick? What, they shouldn't even have been in China. What, why were they in China? Now he's referring to you know, US employees who agreed to go there to represent our country. Um, not to not to speak of the Americans who happen to be there for other reasons. Another time that he sort of stuns his 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 colleagues, his allies, his political advisors, is when he is on the phone with Alex Azar, uh, basically screaming at Azar, the Health and Human Services Secretary, at the top of his lungs, demanding to know who created this monster of, of having the government be responsible for testing. And Azar is confused, according to our reporting, about why is the president so upset that the CDC is engaged in doing some of the, the model test creations, creating the, the baseline for other tests in the future. And he's puzzling through as the president is screaming, what exactly are you upset about? And it, it comes to a head with the president explaining you're doing this testing. The government shouldn't be doing it. It's just driving up my numbers. Yeah. We should never have owned this problem. Again, it doesn't really help 
uh, the American people that he's supposed to be representing for him to be worried about the statistics rather than the value of testing, which is, you know, so obvious to us now, keeping down transmission by figuring out who's infected and keeping them away from people that are healthy. Did you did you conclude, Phil, that and Carol, but Phil, start with you, that had he taken the COVID that, uh, problem more seriously and demonstrated more leadership that Donald Trump could have, would have actually won the election? He certainly could have won the election. He would have been in much better standing uh, had he you know, won the approval of the American people for his handling of the coronavirus pandemic. And if you think about it, the pandemic was a huge political opportunity for him because- yeah. We've seen through history that uh, presidents, when they're faced with a major national crisis like this, if they do well managing it, uh, their popularity goes up substantially. Look at George W. Bush uh, in, in after 9-11 and, and you know, won re-election in 2004. Uh, largely on the strength of, of his sort of waning, but but still potent popularity from 9-11. And you could also look at the state of New Jersey, where Governor Chris Christie's popularity soared, uh, given his handling of Hurricane Sandy. And Christie actually, there there's some moments in our book where he's giving Trump this same counsel, saying, you know, just play it smart on COVID. Listen to the doctors, let them take the lead on the response, do what they say, and people will approve of that. They'll, you'll be popular. Uh, but Trump didn't do that, of course, and the rest is history. I, I will say he wouldn't have necessarily been a lock for re-election because even though before COVID, he looked like he was on a glide path to winning a second term, the economy was so strong, the Democrats seemed like they were a, in a bit of a mess given how crowded and complicated their primary campaign was. You know, we should keep in mind that Trump's approval rating with the general public was always below 50 percent. I mean, he he never had that sort of broad uh, mandate popularity with the with the general public and the, the electorate um, to make him a lock for reelection even before covid, although he certainly would have had a much stronger chance. Uh, and Carol, just a, a final point on that. You you talked about the vaccines. Uh, in, a, in effect, I would say, as a critic of Donald Trump, that he has to get some credit for pushing the vaccine, getting it as fast as we did, but he never did step up and say, "Look what I've done," you know, and and run on on that. Uh, well, it, it's a really important point, Bill, because one of the funny things is the inconsistency of Donald Trump's position on the vaccine. You know, when he was running for re-election, delivering the vaccine was essentially priority one in his administration. He wanted to be able to say. I gave you the, the magic. I gave you and delivered to you basically your lives by giving you this vaccine. It was so important to him that, you know, some members of his administration believed he was going to improperly rush, you know, the pharmaceutical companies to to market or to, to uh, shots in the arm because he wanted so badly to do this before the election, repeatedly harangued his medical advisors to deliver this before the election. And he was livid when Pfizer announced, you know, days after the election that they had determined that they had a vaccine that was usable, safe, and mm -hmm. quite effective in blocking transmission. He was furious. 
he should get credit for the way he pushed this. But he loses a lot of the credit when, you know, in just recent days, he has stoked distrust in the vaccine by saying that, you know, he understands why his supporters don't trust the Biden administration and its delivery of this vaccine. It's almost as if unless he um, delivers it, unless he is the one with the golden platter, um, the golden egg, unless he's got it in his hands, it's not worth anything. Our guests today, Carol Lenning and Phil Rucker, their dynamite new book in the last year of the Trump administration, Donald J. Trump's catastrophic final year, I Alone Can Fix It. Well, you know, there were a lot of people around Donald Trump. Not all of them come out of this book looking good. Does anybody at all come out looking good? Let's get into that with Phil and Carol after a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod. Today's podcast with Carol Lenig and Phil Rucker, brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, the great men and women of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone. They're the good people who serve us uh, in our retail grocery stores, uh, the meat and poultry packing plants, our chemical plants, cannabis plants, across the board, serving the American public every day, 24-7. We salute the members of the UFCW. Thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod and direct you to their website, ufcw.org. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back. The name of the book is, uh, by the way, don't miss it, buy it, read it, and you'll be glued to every page the same way I was. The name of the book, I Alone Can Fix It. Of course, those are the words of Donald Trump. And the book is all about Donald J. Trump's catastrophic final year by Carol Lenning and Phil Rucker. All right, so guys, I looked carefully at your acknowledgments, and I did not see the list of all the sources that you talked to, but I'd like to ask you about a couple of them. Uh, Phil, let's start with you. Did you actually sit down and interview Attorney General Bill Barr? 
you know, Bill, we interviewed so many people who were in and around the president and in the administration, but most if not, most of our interviews were conducted on the condition of anonymity, meaning, you know, we spoke with people, we knew who they were, uh, they gave us their behind the scenes accounts. In some cases, mm-hmm. they shared uh, from their diaries, their calendars, you know, documents that could help corroborate their stories and so forth. But uh, the interviews were conducted on the condition uh, that that we not name them in the pages of the book because they wanted to be able to speak candidly without fear of retribution. And so, you know, you can rattle off a whole bunch of names, Bill, but I, we're, we're not going to be able to tell you uh, yes or no. We're, we're just going to leave it at that. Uh, okay. I, I'm not surprised that that's your policy. I, I do have to say I came away with the impression that you had talked to Bill Barr because in many pages it seems – the book, I think it sounds a little like the Bill Barr Rehabilitation Tour, uh, meaning that uh, in the book, he comes across as um, warning Donald Trump, don't do this, advising Donald Trump, no, you can't do that. That's almost wearing a white hat when the impression of Bill Barr at the time was mostly that he was just a pure sycophant to Donald Trump, um, misrepresenting the Mueller report, refusing to file charges against Donald Trump accusing the FBI of spying, setting up the cleansing of, of uh, Lafayette Square that Carol mentioned earlier. Um, does Bill Barr come across maybe looking too good here, Carol? You know, I, I think it's really important to address this. It's, it's, it's a critical question that every good reader and especially every good political journalist and pundit um, has their eye on, I think, and is aware of. Phil and I were really on guard for the possibility of individuals and their their inner circle trying to uh, sculpt and burnish a reputation or rehabilitate one. And, uh, you know, Phil and I like to say there are no real heroes in this book, no perfect heroes, even though some people come out uh, looking um, good in some moments, but there are none. And Bill Barr comes out with a mixed, quite a mixed bag. We were careful to make sure that anything we learned about individuals was corroborated, not just by their friends, their fans, their their right-hand men or women, but also by people who were their detractors and by documents that you know, documents don't lie. At least um, the ones we were reviewing can't. So it was a it was a core concern of ours as we went into this reporting. As for Bill Barr specifically, I will tell you that it is very mixed because there's no question he was a political ideologue who wanted to help Donald Trump get reelected, come hell or high water. And he did a lot of things that that really chilled uh, Department of Justice alums and and current employees to the bone. Uh, he he crossed lines that they thought were were uncrossable and and left the Justice Department in a situation where it's forever going to be asked is the attorney general leaning over backwards to help a friend of the president's as Bill Barr did. There's no question that the choices he made helped uh Roger Stone and Michael Flynn. But I I would add just that you know Phil and I were stunned to learn that behind the scenes, what what we hadn't known in real time was that Bill Barr was himself unnerved by some of the things the president was doing. And people around Bill Barr were watching him as he was getting to the end of his rope. 
because he could not abide this idea the president had of, again, back to your first question, trying to avoid looking weak, trying to look strong by deploying active duty military in places where local law enforcement and federal law enforcement had protests under control. And and not just under control, but were handling them the appropriate way you should handle civil rights protests. I, you know, um, and, and what it was funny was Bill Barr literally got sick of going to the White House by late summer because he knew why he was being summoned. It was to have another conversation where he had to join with Mark Esper, the Secretary of Defense, and Mark Milley, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, to talk Donald Trump out of unleashing those forces on U.S. citizens. And if Bill Barr comes across mixed, uh, Phil, one person who comes across looking as nutty as he does in real life is Rudy Giuliani. I mean, the role that he played, Trump Trump gave him total charge, right, of his legal defense team after the election to challenge the outcome of the election. Why? You know, I, <laughs> Bill, we can't answer uh, exactly what was in Trump's head when he decided to to deputize Rudy Giuliani with overturning the election, as preposterous as that sounds. But, you know, you're correct that he gave total charge to Rudy Giuliani and, and Giuliani took over within about a week of the election um, being finished. And it was it was a clown show. And that's not our opinion. That's <laughs> no. the opinion of, of many of, of Trump's advisors who were just uh, appalled by Rudy's lawyering, by his public strategy, public relations strategy, by his you know physical and mental comportment. I mean, it was a mess. Uh, but Trump, I think, uh, liked what Rudy had to say. He thought Rudy was a bulldog and a fighter and a true believer, and he wasn't satisfied with the answers he was getting from the more serious lawyers in his orbit. He wanted to hear that there was a possibility of overturning the election, that there had been fraud, uh, that it would be prosecuted, and that Trump would end up being declared the winner. And Rudy was the only person with a law degree uh, who was telling the president that. Uh, he, actually, I take that back. Not the only person. The other lawyer was uh, was Sidney Powell, uh, yeah. the former lawyer to Michael Flynn. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the, the campaign attorney, the RNC, Republican National Committee attorney, the White House counsel, uh, the whole team of lawyers who helped guide the president through the Mueller probe and, and through his other um, challenges over the years, they were much more rational and, and clear eyed about the election and about what fraud existed, and more importantly, what fraud did not exist. And they just were not giving Trump the answers he was looking for, but Rudy did. Well, we don't have time to talk about uh, some of the other players, Mark Meadows, Jared Kushner, Ivanka, Kellyanne Conway, uh, Alex Azar, Chris Christie, some of them have been mentioned. Uh, but if there's anybody who comes out looking like a hero, Carol, you said there are no heroes. I would have to say, if there's anybody, it's Mark Milley chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Carol, what'd you find out about him? This was another jaw dropper for us, Bill, because, you know, while we covered the Trump administration, we, we didn't really cover the Pentagon. And yet, as we began to sit down with more and more sources, they began to sort of whisper to us confidentially, well, you know, 
you know, the Pentagon leaders were afraid there was going to be a coup. And it turned out that the person who was the most concerned about this was General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who's seen his share of combat over his, you know, three and a half decades in the military. And he was quite, quite disturbed and concerned that President Trump and his allies were working on a plot to try to get some sort of control of the Pentagon, the FBI, and or the CIA in order to keep him in power despite Biden's victory. And to overthrow the government. I mean, he was really talking about a military coup. Right. Correct. That's that's what he believed was at, at a foot. And he was getting middle of the night phone calls, Bill, from colleagues, sources, friends, mentors saying, watch your back. There's this guy. There's that guy. There are these people that are Trump loyalists. And trust me, they have this plan in their minds and they're capable of it. So the whether or not Donald Trump countenanced this idea is unclear, but his rhetoric was certainly convincing the chairman that this was viable, that this was possible. It got so scary that the chairman met with the other joint chiefs, his sort of you know tribal council, if you will, of the army, the navy, the air force, and others, and they began talking about what would they do if President Trump ordered a military action, either to create chaos and build his own power, um, consolidated power, or to, you know, take over the government. If he were to do such a thing, what would they do to stop it? And they hatched this idea that they would serially resign one by one. It was essentially a reverse Saturday night massacre. And the goal really was just to throw their bodies slowly, one by one, in front of the president, if he did something that they felt would endanger the country, the democracy, or Americans. And uh, he says, uh, I think you report, and I don't think anybody did before, that he actually said, they can't do it without us. We're the ones with the guns. Yes, that's right. And he was monitoring for for weeks um, different efforts that he believed were afoot, even by the chief of staff, Mark Meadows, to topple the the leadership of the CIA with a Trump loyalist. That person ended up being installed at the Defense Department after Mark Esper was fired. So he had reasons to worry. Right. Uh, So it all leads up to November 3rd. The president had warned ahead of time, as you report, uh, long ahead of time, that this was going to be a rigged election, a stolen election, a fraudulent election. Uh, The claim, of course, he repeated Uh, that very night, election night, actually early in the morning uh, in the East Room of the White House the next morning. Um, And he did everything he could to overturn the election leading up to January 6th. Phil, what did Donald Trump play a direct, you're reporting, a direct role in what happened on January 6th? You know, Yes, because they were all there. The, the the rioters were all there for him, and they were there to follow his order to try to overturn the election and in a show of force that he wanted and that he called for and that he uh, instigated that morning in his speech at the Ellipse. And uh, he invited the, them to he invited the them to Washington ahead of time on that day for that purpose, right? Exactly. Exactly. Now he didn't explicitly uh, say you know, I I want you to break into the Capitol and I want you to try to find the vice president and hang him. (laughs) Those words never came out of the president's mouth. Um, 
but he wanted the show of force. He wanted the crowd in Washington. He stoked the anger. He understood the potency of it. And, you know, he thought that it could produce perhaps the outcome that he wanted, which was a, a change in the election result. But at a minimum, it would uh, it would be a show of force. It would scare and spook uh, his Republican allies in Congress, and it would create sort of the, the drama that he was looking for. Uh, and he felt even to the end convinced Mike Pence to um, <laughs> to break his constitutional duties uh, and overturn the electoral vote. Carol, to this date, has the president ever conceded the election or apologized for what happened on January 6th? Quite the opposite. Um, Donald Trump told Phil and me that he has no regrets for anything that he did in his presidency. He feels that he handled it beautifully and that he was among the best presidents in history. As he told us, you know, he thinks he could beat George Washington and Abraham Lincoln if they came back from the dead on a dual ticket. He thinks he handled COVID well. He thinks that he and he and he insisted to us over and over again all of the ways in which the election was stolen from him and rigged to improperly install Joe Biden as president. He had a long uh, laundry list of examples of things that he believes were uh, pieces of evidence of this this rigging, the corruption of the election. Um, uh, unfortunately, his attorney general, who we previously discussed, who wanted to see him reelected, who hoped uh, to work for him again, uh, his attorney general told him in confidence privately, Mr. President, we've looked into all of these and they're all bullshit. Forgive me, they're all nonsense, but he actually used that other word. And um, so the president continues, forgive me, Donald Trump, the former president, continues to press this case with us, with his friends, with his allies, with his supporters, that this was um, a, a, a completely illegitimate election. It's just that the facts are not on his side. It's an alternate reality that has no basis. And that, and his, can... own, and that his own people uh, have told him multiple times is not true. And that he continues to live in. Um, Final couple of points. Uh, Phil, did he, uh, uh, Phil Carroll, did he tell you he was going to run again in 2024? You know, he hasn't made a decision yet, and he doesn't have to make a decision, you know, until well into next year. Uh, but he certainly intimated that that he would like to. Um, he made clear that he has the the fire in the belly that he wants in the game, in the arena. Uh, he talked to us a little bit about you know, who he would run with as his vice presidential candidate. And it seemed clear to us that were he to run for president again in 2024, it would not be with Mike Pence, <laughs> probably <laughs> with somebody else. Uh, he also, by the way, uh, ruled out Nikki Haley and Chris Christie, both of whom he he considers now to be disloyal to him. Um, but look, he, he, he has time to make that decision. Uh, if he had to make the choice today, it, it certainly seems like he would run. And if he were to run today, uh, he would almost certainly become the Republican nominee. There's just, there's nobody else in the Republican party right now who is anywhere close to, uh, to enjoying his hold on the base and his popularity, broad popularity within the Republican coalition. But as you know, Bill, you know, a year is a long time in politics and the environment could change, his health could change. Uh, he could 
he could face legal challenges that that don't exist at the moment. Uh, and there could also be a hot new star out there who challenges him for supremacy. A lot can happen. Right. Uh, you mentioned the three names that he eliminated from consideration for vice president. Who was on who was on his list to be considered? Ron DeSantis? No. Did you mention any names? He he mostly talked about, I have to say, he mostly discussed the people who he feels have failed him and that he has ruled out. Uh, that was his focus. He wasn't telling us his ideas. Um, in fact, his rejection of a number of potential candidates for vice president um, was just a piece of his long list of individuals that he now considers weak um, people who let him down in that list includes Bill Barr, who he said at the end of the day, at the end of his administration, failed to properly investigate the election fraud, failed in his view to prosecute Trump's enemies as he wished they had. He also listed in this uh, group, Mitch McConnell, who he said was a weak leader who wasn't very smart, Mm -hmm. didn't have any personality. He also listed in this group the entire Supreme Court, but especially (laughs) Justice Justice Kavanaugh, who he he said the Supreme Court was afraid to take up the election uh, challenge and dispute that he brought before the court or his campaign did, said that they were afraid of possibly violence. He intimated that that was violence by uh, progressives and critics of his. He reserved perhaps his most unpleasant um, descriptions for Brett Kavanaugh, who he said he had stood by when other Republicans wanted him to pull Kavanaugh's nomination amid the accusations that as a young man, he had sexually assaulted a classmate, uh, a peer at a a fellow girls' school nearby. And he said, all the Republicans wanted me to to cut him loose. It was was a waste of time. And and I stood by him, but he did not stand by me. Uh, So I would just like to ask you one, this may be an unfair question, and if you don't want to answer it, of course, you don't have to. But I did come away from the book with one other question. On um, Several times, I felt found myself asking, I mean, given Donald's obsession with uh, appearing weak in any way, uh, and some of the crazy things he did and said, and the way he treated people, um, did you ever wonder about come away wondering about Donald Trump's mental stability. Uh, certainly wondering, but you know, we're not, we're not mental health experts and it's not our job to diagnose him. Um, you know, we were fully aware of the ongoing conversation that's been taking place among uh, mental health professionals and, and other observers uh, about his mental state. And, you know, as interesting as that is, that's just not our place to, to get involved in that discussion. Carol, did any of the people that you talked to raise that issue with you, that they, those were working around him sometimes ask themselves that question? There were certainly people around him working for him. And I want to emphasize the people who, who willingly wanted to work for Donald Trump, not career public servants Mm -hmm. who were in those jobs for, for that reason of longevity and, and, governing and and holding up our bureaucracy. Um, The people who worked alongside him by choice, there were several of them that were concerned about his mental state, concerned about his ability to either delude himself or work really hard to delude others. Um, It was disturbing to them to see him 
uh, continually insist that the election was stolen when they all knew that it, it was not. Um, people tried to tell him, his confidants that had been with him for years, tried to tell him he was ruining his legacy, he was harming the country, uh, that he had to concede graciously and gracefully, and they were very worried about why he so insistently clung to this fiction. Right. It is. It was difficult and painful to live through, but reading it is just absolutely absorbing. Again, in I Alone Can Fix It, Donald J. Trump's catastrophic final year. Thank you, Carol. Thank you, Phil. Congratulations again. Great job and encourage everybody. Buy the book, read the book. You will love every page of it just as much as I did. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much, Bill. Thanks, right. Bill. And that's it for today's podcast. With Philip Rucker, Carol Lenning, again, the name of the book is I Alone Can Fix It, and a link to buy the book you can find on the episode notes to this chapter of the Bill Press Pod. Thanks so much for joining us today. Come back and see us at the end of the week on Friday when we'll be back with our reporters roundtable looking back on the big news of this week, including passage of the big infrastructure bill. That's it for now. Take care of yourselves. We'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.